All right, well, it's good to be with you this morning. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. We'll be finishing up, in a sense, a section of this gospel. Um, 5 through 7, when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, large part, beginning of the year. And then 8 and 9 is broken up uh, as a little bit of a self-contained uh, segment where you have three different sets of miracles, and then you have the first set broken up by a call to discipleship, the cost of discipleship, and then you have the second set of miracles followed by a call to Matthew following Christ. And now we've wrapped up. We taught last week on the three, the last three of the final set of three miracles, um, again, showing the comprehensive nature of, of Christ's miracles and his authority over all things that are in creation, both spiritual and natural. And now we come to this place where we're at the conclusion. And, and again, we have uh, this cadence where you have miracle, call to discipleship, miracle, call to discipleship, miracle, and now essentially the final call to discipleship. And uh, in particular, this has to do with this wonderful passage related to praying that the Lord would send laborers into the harvest. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. I really want you to think seriously about this. If you're a note taker, you know, take notes of even the questions, if you could, because I really want you to think intentionally about how do you pray for the lost? It's interesting that here at this juncture, when Matthew is giving this, his, his gospel and writing it out, he is stating very clearly that this account of when Christ then going through all the region, then calling his disciples, having seen the crowds that he had been ministering to all along the way, and saying that the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. This is significant because at the beginning of 10 is when he sets aside the 12 to be his apostles. The reason that's important is because of where it goes from there. And I don't mean just merely in Matthew. I mean the launching pad that that is to the rest of what we would call the New Testament. Because essentially, you and I bear witness to a lost world, to what the apostles witnessed with their own eyes, ears, and hands. We bear witness to the apostolic witness. What is the apostolic witness? Well, we're talking about it every single week when we go through Matthew's Gospel. We talk about it whenever we've walked through parts of Romans or Colossians or Philippians. Or when we first started among you, when we walked, spent a couple of years in John's Gospel. Even when we've gone through the Old Testament, we've looked at Leviticus, we have been able to make the connection how the New Testament apostles recorded the connection of Christ fulfilling the law. Our witness is the apostolic witness. Not because we're apostles, but because we bear witness to what the apostles saw. That's nothing less than the Scriptures. It's nothing less than the Word of God. And the Word of God then, through the apostles, instructed by the Holy Spirit, gives us how to pray evangelistically for the lost. So it is important for you to understand, or at least think about, how do you pray for the lost? Is it real generic? Lord, just save them. Or Lord, be with whomever. Is it biblical to pray for the lost? You say, well, of course it's biblical. Well, honestly, I think that that answer is in part tied to your first answer. How do you pray for the lost? There are actually 
unbiblical ways to pray that lost people be saved. It's not heresy. Not yet. Hopefully we won't get there. How does the Bible tell us to pray for the lost? Let me, I want you to turn to a couple of passages. Flip back to Matthew 6. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Christ gives instruction on how to pray. Here's what he says. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you think that God's will ever faces a hiccup in heaven? None. He will accomplish His will perfectly. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you realize that directly... The one place that they say, teach us how to pray, and Christ says, well, then pray like this, that he really gives no clear instruction on how to pray for the lost. But in a sense, I say that he does. Because what happens, even in the Sermon on the Mount, when he's given instruction to the church in how to pray, it's not that he's saying, well, be real selfish. Give me what's mine. Give me bread. Give me money. Give me whatever. Make me happy, wealthy, wise, whatever. No, what he's praying for is that those who are mindful and in relationship to God, they are to pray in such a way that they subject themselves that God's will be done in any and all ways that God sees fit that it be done. It is a yielding, a surrendering to the complete and total will of God to be accomplished in all of its ends and means in the way that God sees fit. And he says, you pray that first. You are holy let your will be done. And then he says, take care of our needs. Meet our needs. Forgive us of our sins for those who cry out as we forgive those who have sinned against us. It's a very Christian-centric kind of praying. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, you don't have to turn there, but at least take note of it to read at some point. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that supplications prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. This is a very generic call to prayer. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. That we, believers, is what he's talking about. Godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's interesting. He prays that kings and all who are in high positions. I, I certainly think that by default he's praying that even kings, presidents, congress, senators would come to faith. But what he's saying here, if you look carefully, he says that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives. Godly. And dignified. All of a sudden, it sounds like you're praying for the salvation of rulers, but then he ends up saying, so that we as a church, as God's people, would be able to live godly lives. And it's after that that he says, it's God's desire that all be saved. 1 John 5, 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. 
I do not say that one should pray for that. Really? I thought we were supposed to pray for everything and everyone. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that leads, that leads, that does not lead to death. Well, specifically, he's talking about the rejection of the gospel is the sin that leads to death. The complete and abject rejection of the rulership of Christ. He's not saying don't pray that lost are saved. But in this situation, he's actually saying don't pray for those who are, act, who are actually rejecting Christ. What does he say? He says pray for all types of sin, pray for there to be forgiveness, and pray essentially, if you know the, the message of 1 John, that Christians are restored and renewed in their fellowship with one another. Now, I'm not bringing you some kind of new or wacky theology of prayer today. But here's what I want to say very distinctly, regardless of how this rubs against you. Most of the time, I'm not going to give you percentages. I'm not going to take that kind of pastoral license to start making up numbers. But if we do derive that there is a way to pray evangelistically in the Scriptures, it is, without a doubt, most of the time, evangelistic praying has to do with the church being the church. It has to do with those who have been redeemed to become those who are usable to accomplish the will of God. In a sense, the most evangelistic praying for the Christian is for Christians to pray for Christians to really live like they're Christians. Because that is the means by which God has seen fit to proclaim the gospel in this world. This is why Christ's economy is so strange. In John 13, if you love one another, they will know that you are my disciples. Paul gives instruction to Timothy and he says, look, show godliness, show love, show faithfulness. But first and foremost, show that not to the lost community, show it to the church. Because in Christ's strange economy, he says, look, I own the world. I don't own just the cattle on a thousand hills. I am the Lord of the harvest. Not the harvest as if he doesn't become Lord until you run out there and just run the sickle through. And then all of a sudden there's some fruit and he says, okay, now I'm their Lord. No, no, no. That's not what you get in this passage today. He is already the Lord of the harvest that people haven't even gone into yet. He is already planting the seeds. He's already awakening and quickening hearts. He is already regenerating lives. Even if just to see, like Romans 1.20 says, that there is creation and there is a God. And before you know it, someone like Kim shows up with the specificity of the gospel. And they're given life. Let's read our text. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to understand 
the very simple but profound nature of this text today. That we would be careful to respond in kind to your charge and to your call and command to pray rightly and biblically about evangelism. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What I want to see first is verse 35. The comprehensive work of Christ. Now, we've already seen it really in chapters 8 and 9. But here, Matthew pulls everything together. He says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. He does not specify how big they were. He just says all. He just kept on walking and doing what Jesus does. Cities of all sizes. Nothing was too big and too metropolitan to scare him and nothing was so small to feel like it was a waste of time. He went through all the cities, all the villages. Throughout the region of Galilee, he did this. What did he do? Well, it's pretty clear. He taught in their synagogues. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, number two. And number three, he was healing every disease and affliction. This comprehensive work of Christ, Matthew is bringing together these summary statements to say that he went comprehensively throughout the region. He went everywhere there were people and there were crowds. And while he was there, he taught them. Where there was a synagogue, he taught. But he also preached, and there's distinction. Teaching, which certainly is valid, Christ is doing it, in the synagogue is giving instruction. Most specifically, he's giving biblical instruction on the real nature of the law. Because that's what's taught in the synagogues. And he's teaching rightly what the Old Testament scriptures meant and who rightly they pointed to, the Messiah. What to look for, what to expect. He was teaching, imparting information of the scriptures. But there's also the proclamation. The proclamation certainly includes the information, but it's also provoking to a response. It's a very personal type of teaching, but it goes further. It's provoking and even commanding a response. And in this, he very clearly says, he is proclaiming one thing, the gospel of the kingdom. Now, in the teaching in the synagogues, we see this model in the apostles' lives. Everywhere Paul went and found a synagogue, that's the first place he would go and find. If he didn't find it, he would go and find wherever Christians may be. Just like in Philippi when he ran up to Lydia. There was no place for him to go otherwise, and so he ended up finding a woman, Lydia, who was a believer. But by and large, these guys, if you read through Acts, they mostly defaulted to what Christ did. They first taught in the synagogues. Why? Because Christ, like he said in 5.17 of Matthew, is the fulfillment of all of the law, all of the scriptures. So it makes sense. But this preaching, the gospel of the kingdom, gospel, it's good news. It's glad tidings. But how could Christ preach gospel when he and his death, burial, resurrection, ascension is so central to the gospel message as we know it? Well, it's good news and it's gospel telling. It's glad tidings bearing just like it was when you had the angel giving the evangel of, I bring you good news of great joy, glad tidings of great joy. They're proclaiming gospel. What's the good news? The good news is Christ. The good news is that there is bad news and that is sin, but there is good news in that there is forgiveness for sin. The good news is that there is an eternal kingdom because there is bad news, and that is men's kingdom does not sufficiently satisfy the souls and the heart cry of men. 
It's good news because Christ has come. The gospel has been since basically the moment that Christ entered the framework. The angel, there's one born. The gospel in this sense, I'm not saying it didn't begin even in the Old Testament, but I'm saying the word evangel and the idea of the gospel of the kingdom, it began in that sense when Christ took on flesh, when God took on flesh, Christmas story on. This helps you understand that to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must be saved by all of who Christ is. You have to be saved by His incarnational birth. You have to believe that Christ was born of a virgin and was God and took on flesh. If you reject the fact that Christ came as God and took on flesh, you cannot be a Christian. If you reject the fact that Christ lived His life perfectly without any sin, not in attitude or in action, you cannot be a Christian. If you do not believe that Christ actually ascended the hill of Golgotha, having been accused and beaten and scorned and yet deserved none of it, was completely innocent of all claims and crimes against him, and that he actually physically died on the cross, you cannot be a Christian. If you reject that Christ only went into a deep, or that he, if you accept that he only went into a coma and reject the fact that he actually died and that he actually rose again on the third day on that Sunday morning, If you reject the physical, voracious resurrection of Christ, you cannot be a Christian. If you reject that Christ then rose from the grave, appeared between four to five hundred guys, and then ascended before their eyes to sit at the right hand of the Father and then give the Holy Spirit to believers, if you reject that, you cannot be a Christian. Because the gospel bears witness that the good news is Christ himself. You do not get to chop up Jesus and believe you get heaven at all. It is all of Christ or it is none of Christ. So when he preaches the gospel of the kingdom, he is calling them to turn away from the kingdom of this of men, trusting and banking in the law and her religious practices or the rulers and the Romans to give them joy and give them eternal life and even the remission of sin. They're turning away from the kingdom of men in repentance to the kingdom of heaven. Christ and His ways. They didn't know what all was coming, but just like He had already called men into discipleship, they were to leave everything and follow Christ wherever He goes. That's the good news. You believe, you turn away from trusting in the world and you see Christ. He becomes more beautiful and you start following him wherever he goes, wherever he leads. You're going to follow him and you're going to believe everything that he says and does. Now, we have the complete New Testament. We have the whole story. They didn't. But the nature of preaching includes repentance. And the fact that he's preaching the kingdom of heaven means they're repenting from trusting in this world to trusting in the kingdom of heaven. He's healing. He's continuing to do and publicize his authority over all of creation. Everywhere he goes, just continue to do these things. All types shows the comprehensive nature. There was no type of sin or disease. And we already have even seen last week how even death itself, it just cannot reign. Because Christ rules. So we see the comprehensive work of Christ in verse 35. In verse 36, we see the compassionate view of Christ. Look at what this says. When he saw the crowds, 
He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw the crowds. It literally means he took notice. Now, we've seen this already in the clear, in the, in the more uh, specific examples in chapters eight and nine. We've already seen this where a woman reaches out for the hem of his garment and he stops and takes notice of the individual. But here, just even in the sea of humanity, everywhere he goes, there's no specific crowd he's, Matthew's talking about. He's just saying wherever he saw crowds, he took great compassion upon them. It does make me think, do you see people like Christ, if you're a Christian, yes, I will say there's no way for you to have compassion to the depth and the level that Christ did and to be able to act upon it like Christ did. But if you're a Christian, you do have Christ. So therefore, your compassion can be like Christ's. Are you even looking at the crowds with compassion? I'll, I'll, I'll shape that even more specifically in a moment, but... 2 Corinthians 5.16 came to mind as I was preparing the message. And he, Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Basically, do you see people through spiritual eyes? Are you expecting lost people to behave really well so that you're not so uncomfortable in front of them? If you see the lost through spiritual eyes... I guarantee you'll be more patient and at the same time more compassionate to share the gospel with them. What about Christians? I mean, do you expect Christians to be perfect? Or, on the other hand, do you blow off the sin of brothers and sisters in Christ mainly because you don't want anybody to hold you accountable? If you possess Christ, if we see anything in this text by the end of it is... The most evangelistic thing you can do is to pray that Christians be like Christians. It is evangelistic to discipline one another in the church. Because holy living bears a greater witness than every other social compassion initiative we would ever have as a program in the church. Holy people speaking gospel things is what changes lives. If you have that, you probably need no other initiatives. But when he took notice, though, he had compassion on them. It literally means to take pity, to feel sympathy. As I was looking through older definitions of this word for compassion, it literally meant, in the oldest terms, a stirring of the bowels. So I have a marketing background. And so, and background means that was my degree because accounting was too hard. And so, um, but I'm really creative. The staff just loves when I get creative about initiatives. And you've actually seen none of them because they're just too creative. But as we talk about initiatives, in fact, even with, you know, we talk about love the city. I mean, you know, there, there would have been a more Greek exacting kind of way we could have phrased love the city. We could have called it a bowel movement. Because the compassion stirs us so deeply in our gut. We just are compelled. My daughter's pretty much said that's funny, but I think they begged me not to share that from the pulpit. But I did. Yes, I did. It's on records, recorded, maybe. 
this. <laughs> this deep, though, change because of what was seen. Now, what was seen. We need to understand that this compassion becomes Christ's subjective motivation for his work. He'd already taught them to pray, though, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Later on in the garden, what does he pray? Nevertheless, thy will be done. But when the subjective motivation connects up with the objective relegation to God's will, there is nothing that can stop you. Nothing. And you know what? Actually, God has designed it that way. What is the great commandment? To what? Love the Lord your God with what? Are your heart, soul, mind, strength, right? It is a whole body experience. It is a whole life experience. It is, without having a better word for it, a holistic experience to worship God with all that you are. So we should have a subjective motivation. We should feel the stirring in our gut because we see the haplessness and the helplessness of men without a shepherd, a savior. This condition that he saw, it says that he saw them as harassed and helpless. Let's focus on these two words to begin with. In seeing their condition as harassed, it means to be oppressed, to be bullied, but Okay, look, I know we use that word a lot. And there's there's so many campaigns of anti-bullying and and so much of it is legitimate. I do get that. I do get that. I'm, I, I do I mean I've, I've got to say too, I think that we extend that sometimes way too far as sometimes our tendency is in our overly diagnosed victimized society, but it is good not to bully people. So don't But you need to understand, though, this word goes on. When it talks about bullying, it means to flay or to skin. He sees them as literally wounded and exposed to the elements and becoming infected. When Christ says bullying, that's what he means. It's not just being annoyed. It is being, yes... Victims of injustice. And yes, led by false shepherds. The religious leaders of the day. Now look, please don't get me wrong. He's not saying that they're... He's not victimizing them because he's not dismissing their sinfulness. They are also in this condition because they are sinners. But those who are trying to lead them so-called out of sin are not doing so. And it's leaving them completely exposed to the elements. And they will die unless a right shepherd comes in. He also sees them as helpless. This means to be hurled, tossed, or thrown down. A second meaning to this word also means unable to rescue yourself. It's so descriptive of sheep. Without leadership, sheep will only get themselves in trouble. You know what? Goats can be just fine and happy all by themselves. They don't necessarily have to be in herds or whatever. They'll be fine. And, and I'm not saying that's a good thing. 
But sheep, which is what we're likened to as the church, they get themselves in trouble without shepherds. And they do not, by nature, get themselves out of trouble. Now, he's talking most specifically to those who are being led by false leaders like those religious leaders of the day and how much they need the Christ. Not really necessarily talking about sheep as far as the flock of God, those who are already redeemed, but I still think the principles apply. You have under-shepherds, you have pastors, you have elders that are to lead faithfully the people. Not treating you like you're dumb sheep, but still leading, though, as Christ would have the church be led. It's interesting because Numbers 27, 15 through 18 says this. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of all of, of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, which is basically Christ's, Name in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew. Yeshua, deliverer. Son of none. A man in whom is the Spirit and lay your hand on him. There's other examples. In Zechariah, about future prophecy of the Messiah. Talks about how they are like sheep without a shepherd. Remember again, Matthew's context is specifically to the Jew. He's connecting these Old Testament images of what the people of God are like. In the past, they've always needed a Christ type. You had that in Moses. You had that in Joshua. You had that in David. But they died. They weren't the Messiah. And then Christ came. He is the only sufficient Savior and shepherd for the sheep. There is no shepherd because there are no shepherds who are alive and who are God. Christ is the only shepherd for men. And then he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. This isn't a real third description. He's saying that harassed and helpless are descriptive of those who are without shepherds. But it's lacking more than just leadership. He's not talking about leadership. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about words of life. He's talking about deliverance. Leads them out of danger. Doesn't just lead them with initiatives and prerogatives. He leads them with the gospel and the words of deliverance. John 10, 11 through 16. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. That's what he says. We have the comprehensive work of Christ. We have the compassionate view of Christ. And lastly, we have what really is the crescendo point of the message. The prayerful call of Christ. Verses 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples. Okay, so... Get, get the picture. He is stirred. He is moved. He's had compassion on the lostness before him. And his first response to both 
the objective will of God being done, which Christ always do, does perfectly, and also the subjective motivation of the deep, merciful compassion he's feeling, is to turn to the disciples. He doesn't say, okay, let's get a new program. Let's find a new training method. Let's go have a pizza blast. He turns to them and he says this. The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. First of all, it's clear there is a great harvest. The harvest is plentiful. He moves from this image of shepherd and sheep to harvest and laborers. To bring to, together this whole great picture. What this helps us understand, first of all, is that since this is the harvest of God, and it's a great harvest that the laborers are to go into, that the laborers should at least, first of all, realize that even before they've gotten there, that God owns this harvest. This is God's harvest. It doesn't matter where it is. It doesn't matter if it's near, far, completely foreign to you. It doesn't matter. You are not showing up before God Almighty. It's His harvest. And because it's His harvest then, how much fruit is in that harvest is really upon the Lord's. His prerogative, His will, His design. Therefore, it's not ours to decide which harvest is worth going to. Sure, you have to feel a call. And that call is most clearly derived by what is most clearly biblical. So are you saved? Are you being sanctified in the Lord? Are you in the church of God and receiving godly counsel? And then as you examine then, what is the subjective motivational desire? As you discern God's call in your life, frankly, it doesn't matter where he ends up leading you. God's already there. How much you'll harvest in? I don't know. I just know that wherever the harvest is, it's plentiful. Right here on campus, in Boulder, in the deserts. It is not yours to decide whether or not it looks like there might be fruit. You are getting out of your... It's not even pay grade. I mean, you're, you're like out of your dimension to even think, yeah, boy, that looks like a place people are really going to respond. Let's do it. Yeah. Not your call. My, one of my best friends growing up, he and I were uh, mistaken for brothers um, all the way through high school. Uh, for people that didn't know us, at least in high school, early on, played baseball together. Um, he was my catcher, I was a pitcher, and um, just a great, great dear friend, but was lost. Brought him to a lot of church stuff through middle school, um, then high school. Um, I had a kidney mess-up thing and, and still had some other scholarships, but just didn't want to do that. Todd ended up getting a, a scholarship to a Division One school playing baseball, and, and our courses began to separate a little bit um, part of the way through high school. Well, as I shared my faith with Todd, we got to a point later on in high school where he he just told me, he says, if you share this with me again, our friendship's over. And we've been friends since, I don't know, eight or nine years old. And, I mean, I'd never had anything happen like that before at that time. And so I prayed. I mean, I wasn't at all a perfect kid. I mean, if you want to know what I was like in high school, just ask Jan, I guess. She knew me then. But um, 
I'll never forget. Um, sophomore year in college, in the apartment, um, about 1230 at night, sitting around our kitchen table, a bunch of guys playing. Um, I'm sure it was a real Baptist-approved card game, maybe. And I get a phone call. And no cell phones, okay? I mean, if a cell phone is like Michael J. Fox and it's about this big, it looked like it belonged on the, you know, World War II battlefield, but we didn't have those. So just got a phone call. And um, Todd tracked me down. He's just in tears. And he just called to say, man, thank you all those years for sharing the gospel with me. I just came to Christ. Oh, man. I mean, I didn't need to be there. I didn't care if I was the guy that closed the deal. I was weeping, man. I mean, I'm coming back, and, and they're like, you bluffing? I mean, I don't know. Um, come back to the table. I was like, no, man, guys. It's And I told them what was going on. Um, and, uh, man, it was just incredible what the Lord had done. And and yet, Todd would not have looked like one of those guys that looked reachable. And he didn't even sound reachable. But God saw fit. Even today, I've got a relationship that's been renewed with a girl that I knew in high school. Be careful how that gets recorded. It's a friend. And you know what? She has become a multimillionaire. And we just start some interaction. And before you know it, she says, I. Everything was real surfacy and good. Oh, I'm good. I'm good. About the sixth time of interaction. By the way, Jan's seen all these interactions. Okay. Safe, safety. This stuff can get dangerous, I know. She says, you know, actually, I am soul searching. I, I have no idea why you just reached out to me, but I just found, or I just started, somehow she came across a copy of The Case for Christ within the last week or two. I mean, she's just searching. She needs nothing in this world. You don't get to decide what harvest is ripe. You're just supposed to go. Because the Lord's already made the harvest. He's already begun the work. You're to go with the sickle of the gospel and see what's reaped. We also know there's few laborers. This means literally workers. But here's what I find amazingly interesting about this word. Again, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Do you know in the culture what the word laborers in the Greek, wouldn't necessarily know in the Greek, but what this word means figuratively? I mean, I'm, I'm a literal interpretation guy, okay? So I'm not saying that this is, you know, he's using an example. There are real harvests and there are real laborers, whether or not he's ever talking about a specific situation where he's pointing at a field. There's times that happens. But you know what I find interesting is that this word is often shared in their culture for teacher. I don't mean any offense by what I'm about to say, unless it needs to offend you. God has not sent I'm going to have to give one more caveat. Um, listen to the whole thing, OK? Now, laborers that are to go in the field, God has not sent social workers psychologists, counselors, whatever, into the field alone with that exercise to bring in the harvest. He's not going to bring in a harvest through means less than proclaiming with words the gospel. If he uses a social working platform for you, great. 
But the church of God can never be deceived to think that her sweet, endearing relationships and social benevolence will ever win anyone to Christ if you don't speak the words. Faith cometh by hearing. It doesn't come by benevolence. And hearing in producing that word that's heard and that faith that's born brings about salvation. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you need to be a seminary trained whatever and go do this. Man, learn as much as you can. The point is, it is a teaching. It is a proclaiming. It is a definitional thing. Just like Christ did. He taught in synagogues and he proclaimed out in the, in society. But both occasions demand words and some doctrinal fidelity. Not just being nice. That's the kind of labor he's sending out. Because if you bring in a harvest by means other than the spoken gospel, it ain't the eternal kingdom harvest you just reaped. It's something else. So we know there's a great Lord of the harvest. There's a great harvest. There is few. There are few laborers. And there's a great Lord of the harvest that is to be appealed to in this. Pray to the Lord of the harvest, which just by nature, it subjects yourself to his sovereign rule over all of the earth. This prayer that's to, that is clearly to, to go out is, is a sent kind of prayer. He says, but pray to the Lord of the harvest earnestly with vigor to send out laborers, these teachers with whatever the platform is, but these proclaimers Go and reap the fruit that's out there in the world. God's already there. He owns it. He desires for them to come in. Go and share these words and you will see them come in. He doesn't tell you how successful it's going to look. Adonam Judson saw very little. George Mueller just didn't see a ton. William Carey saw some, but nothing like what happened later. They all had cause to feel like they were failures according to worldly standards of success. God's reaping will come in in God's time. And you know how it's going to come in in His time? It's always on time because it's always going to be His glory that's received. There's not going to be a confusion that the harvest is reaped because of man's work. It's going to be because at just the right time, laborers went, harvest was drawn in. And God gets the praise. This word about sent, it's great. He says to send out laborers. Man, this is a word that is used for so many different types of sending. It could mean a commissioning kind of sending. But you know what? It also means to cast out, to drive away, to expel. I find this interesting because you know what? From Acts on we find this kind of sending going on. We do. We don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but I probably don't even need to mention this, but I'll at least tag to it a little bit. So Acts 1.8. No, I'm not setting up my kingdom yet. But And that's not for you to know when, verse 7, but verse 8, chapter 1. But you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth. Acts 8.1. We've mentioned this before. It's, it's post-Stephen's martyrdom, Paul standing there holding the cloaks, great dispersion, great persecution, church goes out, but the apostles stay in Jerusalem. Christ is talking to the apostles only in Acts 
but it's the people that go out in Acts 8.1. What does this tell you? Well, in following Christ right here, guess what? The apostles are they're, they're going out. They're going out to every place that Christ goes, all the villages, all the cities. After he leaves, he says, stay put. Sends out a bunch of other people. Then what happens? The apostolic ministry, they bear witness to it. They give record. They write letters. They become the Bible. And the apostolic witness, which is the scriptures, goes out to where churches were already planted because of the dispersion. They didn't want to leave Jerusalem. But because of persecution, they were scattered. doesn't matter how you go. You're sent. Sometimes God's pries it away from you. And other times, he says, go. And it's a burden. And you just say, yes. You have to trust that God is sovereign over His harvest and He's sovereign in His sending needs. He is. Because what do we see? Well, look at chapter 10 just briefly. Now, this will overlap into another message. But this is... 10, 1 through 4 is kind of the the contextual glue between the section of 8 and 9 and what comes later. It says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the apostles. And he goes on and gives them their names. So what happens? They are to pray, Lord, send laborers. And Jesus then calls their names. Oh, yeah, I think I'd rather pray that God just save people. Send laborers? Yes, absolutely. The most dangerous and the most biblical way to pray evangelistically is Lord of the harvest, send laborers into your fields. You know what? You're not going to find a text of Scripture that just generically says, you know what? Pray that your neighbors are saved. Just generically. What you're going to find is you're going to find prayers of charge to the church for Christians to live faithfully so that it's salt and light to the lost. You're going to find, Lord, send laborers into your fields. You're going to find, essentially, just like Isaiah, here am I, send me. That is the essence of evangelistic praying. Lord, you own the fields. Lord, you do the sending. Send even me. Look, don't pretend that you are praying evangelistically if you're not willing to be a sent one. You need to pray that the Lord does a work in you, the laborer, so that then you will go to whatever fields you're in, right here in Fayetteville, U of A, your work, your home. I mean, a lot of your fields have already been defined for you. This is why there can be a wrong kind of mission lust with some people to just get on a plane and go feel really good they did some really hard things but then they come back and they never share the gospel pray that the Lord would make you a sent one who's willing to say here am I send me Spurgeon says this let us plead with the Lord of the harvest to care for his own harvest and send out his own men may many a true heart be moved by the question whom shall I send and who will go for us to answer, here am I, send me. So in conclusion, and as a note, in chapter 10, verse 1, he says he gives the authority to these apostles. 
And it's interesting, he gives them all the same authority over the physical world that he had to cast out demons and to heal. Now look, we're not apostles. The apostles died. And what we do with apostles is bear witness to their testimony, which is the Bible. The gospel most specifically. And God can choose to heal through the prayers of saints. And certainly, if as a Christian, we do have the spiritual authority to cast out demons. But do you know what He never gave the apostles authority to do? Forgive sin. Even what they were to do that could be so looked upon and even revered, maybe even worshipped by those who saw what just happened. It's all meant just to capture attention, to show the authority of the name in which they invoke to do these things. And only in that name is there forgiveness of sin. The apostles could never forgive sin. you got to so mess up the Bible for Peter to become the Pope and then also have the authority to forgive sin. It's ridiculous. No apostle anywhere of all time has never They've never had the authority to forgive sin. Only Christ. So with that, Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. Do you believe that? Christ alone. There's no other Savior. There's no other Messiah. There's no other agent. There's only Christ. Do you believe that? People are harassed and helpless because they are unforgiven. And they are without a shepherd. They sadly are looking for others to lead them and they are false shepherds. And they are beaten down and they are plummeted to their own destruction. Do you believe that people are harassed and helpless and without Christ in this world? Do you see the crowds? Do you believe that? God owns all the fields with all the harvests. Do you believe that? Do you pray for the lost? That's not as important as praying for laborers to go into those fields and proclaim good news to the lost. That's how you pray for the lost. I cannot imagine what would happen in the life of UBC if across the board everyone totally bought into the idea that praying for the lost is not some generic prayer, but it's praying specifically that God would send laborers into his harvest field. You, you wouldn't have an 80-20 issue. I mean, you would, you would scoot up to at least half the people serving and proclaiming their faith real quickly. Which is, in the end, God's means of church growth. Pray that the Lord would send laborers. Be willing to be a laborer because you are, if you're a Christian, the only other angle I would give on that is if you feel like that as you look at being a laborer and even maybe your lack of willingness to go wherever the Lord would send you, you probably need to repent of loving this world a little too much. You need to repent of some sin that's probably enamored you with the temporal. So basically, I would ask you as a Christian to pray two things. Pray that you become a sent one. You are technically, but even spiritually in holiness, that you are a sent one. And then pray that the Lord would send you. But understand that as you're becoming a sent one, you're going to start seeing crowds like Christ did. You're going to see the crowd of your children. 
And you're going to feel the weight if you've not shared the gospel with your own kin. You will feel that burden. You're going to see the crowds spiritually. You're going to start seeing co-workers spiritually. You're still going to go to games. You're going to cheer. But you're every once in a while, more than often, or more than at least happened before, you're going to stop and you're going to see 76, 77,000 people. And you're going to go... If the halftime show was Christ coming back, most of them would go to hell. If you pray rightly, you will see rightly and you will live rightly. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers and be willing to say, here am I, send me. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the blessing and the gift of your word that makes plain that you are sovereign and in control over all things, even every place that the lost step their feet. You are already doing a work in places, even among unreached peoples, where you have caused them even just to look at creation and not buy into folklore. But there's something stirring in them. God, raise up missionaries to go tell them what it is that's been stirring in them. If they've had dreams, then, then bring someone to proclaim the truth. Even if it turns out the dream wasn't really all that accurate, but that it provoked them to listen to a message. God, even in this room, raise up people who are shocked that you are calling them. Not, maybe yes, to the mission field. But first and foremost, to the fields that they're in right now to actually open up their mouths and to speak these things. Thank you for your word that makes it clear that you are the Lord of that harvest and that you are the Lord of the laborers and that you put those two things together in your own sovereign good timing and ways and send laborers, Lord, all of us, send us into the fields that you would have us to go, that the harvest would come in and you alone would receive the glory. Cause that to happen in us, Lord, and in this church. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.